seated. Okay, uh, we are going to do something just a little bit different this morning because we have a long scripture passage ahead of us. We're going to read Amos chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through chapter 2, verse 16. Um, I want to invite you to grab a Bible and follow along with us. There are two Bibles. There are red Bibles. If you've got a red Bible, it's on page 596. If you have a brown Bible, it's on page 1424. And as we read through this, uh, follow, you can follow along with us on the pages of your Bible. And we also have some slides, I believe. They're coming momentarily. That are going to show us a map. Because we're going to be reading the names of a, of a bunch of different nations. And so it'll help you to kind of get a picture of where these places are. Because I know they are foreign to all of us. Uh, so glance up there occasionally and you can see where we're talking about. Uh, and we're going to read through this. Hear now the reading of God's word. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges, having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom, I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod, and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron to the last of the Philistines are dead, says the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre, that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Taman that will consume the fortress of Basra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king 
I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of a trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were as tall as cedars and as strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is it not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you. As a cart crushes when loaded with grain, the swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be It's an interesting one to say thanks be to God for at the end. Also a really timely, homecoming, cheery text for all you who have come back to visit. But uh, it, in fact, is the word of the Lord. Um, a few, I don't blame you if you're feeling a little bewildered right now, a little bit confused about what all that was, even with the map and all that. It's a tough read. Um, a few nights ago, Melissa, trying to be a, a wonderful mother and disciple our children, uh, said she was going to read scripture and knew we were starting in the book of Amos. And so she picked up Amos and uh, was about to start reading it to them, and I stopped her. <laughs> I said, I don't know how long it's been since you read it, but I don't think our kids are going to be able to follow this. I, uh, I didn't have the same mercy on you. We are going to study this because, in fact, it is the Word of God. And that means that we need to understand it. It means that there is a message in here that is of eternal importance. And, you know, as we study it this morning, I really do think, with just a little bit of explanation, we're going to find that this message is an extremely powerful word for us this morning. Really, at the heart of this ancient prophecy is the answer to a question that a lot of us are asking. 
which is with all the stuff that's happening in the world today, with all the stuff that's happening in my own life, all the struggles, all the challenges that I'm facing, does God care? Now, there's a lot to cover to get to that answer. So I think the best way we can do it is by looking at three truths that we learn in this passage. And they are three things. One, that God rules over all the nations. Two, God relates intimately to his chosen people. And three, God always accomplishes his purposes. God rules over the nations. He relates intimately to his people. And he always accomplishes his purposes. Okay, so God rules the nations. Last week, we learned about Amos. We learned that he was a prophet around the year 760 B.C. Now, 150 years before him, the nation of Israel had split in half. They had split into two parts. Israel was the northern part, and then Judah down here is the southern part. Amos was from the south. He was a Judean, but God called him to the north to preach to the Israelites. So when we read this book, when we read this long prophecy that mentions all kinds of different places, you need to remember that God is first and foremost talking to Israel. He's giving a message to the northern nation, even when he is talking about all of these other places. There are eight different nations that we mentioned there as the slides were going around. Um, And those nations come in a very specific order. They start off with the distant, the more distant enemy nations. They move to the nations that are more closely connected to Israel and then to Judah, the other half of the, the split in half people of God, God's covenant people. And then finally at the end, he hits Israel at the climax. And uh, that strategy, that kind of reminds me of one of the first times that Melissa and I went to, to marriage counseling. Um, just a note, we still go to marriage counseling. I had a, a pastor once tell me only healthy couples go to marriage counseling. The rest of them just fight all the time. So uh, we, we still do. But once, once back at the beginning, maybe our very first session, I remember going into this counselor, and she brought out this whole list of, of all the bad things that Melissa was doing. And as she spoke, I just felt so validated. I was thinking, wow, you know, Counseling is great, right? Finally, somebody said it. Somebody's willing to tell her all those things that that she needs to hear. And the next session rolled around, and I was ready to go. I was excited for another week of of counseling. And, of course, you know, the next time, it was my turn. And it was rough. And it was hard to listen to what this counselor had to say. But at the end of the meeting, my honest thought was, well, I know she was right about Melissa. (laughs) So maybe she's right about me too. I should probably listen to what she has to say. You can imagine maybe a similar dynamic taking place as the people of Israel are hearing this sermon preached. While Amos is telling about all the bad stuff that those horrible enemy nations have, have done. They might have been pretty happy to hear that, right? You tell them, God. I've been saying it for years. Those are awful people. You bring them your judgment. But then it was their turn. Uh-oh. 
It's not so fun now. And that's kind of the flow. That's the flow of this passage. We go from Damascus to Tyre to Gaza. Then we go to the nations that are more closely related by ancestry. He hits on Edom and Ammon and Moab. But amongst all of these foreign nations, the message is pretty similar. It's it's clear. God is saying this. He says, I rule over all the nations. The way one scholar put it, he said the, the message here is that Israel belongs to God, but God did not belong to Israel. God is the Lord of all creation, and he has the right to rule over it. He has a claim to the whole earth. And in our prophecy, he keeps repeating the same phrase over and over. You probably heard it. He says, for three sins of blank, even for four. For three sins of Damascus, even for four. For three sins of Tyre, even for four. For three sins of Gaza, even for four. He repeats this thing over and over. It's, It's kind of a way of saying, I have been very patient. But three strikes and you're out. I'm not putting up with it anymore. I have... Seen you this whole time. I have seen all of your sins, but I'm sick of it. And what are those sins? Well, they kind of vary. As you listened while we were reading, they vary from nation to nation. They vary. Some of them happened recently. Some of them happened years and years before. But they all fall into a similar category. You could call them outrageously inhumane crimes, violent, horrific war crimes. These are the kinds of things that God is calling them out for. Things like capturing and selling entire communities into slavery. You, that's in chapter 1, verses 6 and 9. Or in chapter, in chapter 1, 13, it talks about murdering pregnant women. It talks about desecrating dead bodies. It talks about brutally attacking people in war in order to expand their territories. It's the kinds of things where if you saw them, you'd be traumatized by it. If you witnessed it, you would would be horrified. And God declares that he's horrified. And that he will punish these nations for the atrocities they've committed. Yahweh is reminding Israel, and he's reminding us too, that he is the Lord of all creation. And even those nations out there who don't know him, the ones who have never received his law, they are still accountable before God. It's just, it's the same thing that Paul is telling us in Romans 1, right? The law of God is written on the hearts of all humankind. That we instinctively know what evil is. And God won't let that go unpunished. But the other thing we see here is that God's timing is his own. Some of these things, they took place decades before. Some of them took place centuries before, and God still hadn't acted. And that is really helpful for us, because I think in our own day, we find ourselves in that same place. Even as, as Robert was praying, right? We look around and we say, what is God doing? We think about what's happening in today's news, but just look back a couple of decades. How could God permit a a genocide in Rwanda? How could he permit hundreds of years of slavery? How could he let 9-11 happen? Well, 
this passage, it doesn't answer the question of why he let it happen. But instead, it shows us a picture of God. It shows us a God who is holy, a God who is just. It shows us a God who is aware, who sees, but he's also eternal. And that means that he sees not just what's happening right now, but he sees way past our vantage point. He sees things at a much different angle than we see them. I've heard people compare it to the difference in perspective between an adult and a child. If you're a kid and you're six years old and your parents come home like we did a couple, you know, a year and a half ago to our kids and say, hey, we're moving across the country. Dad's got a new job. Well, what are you thinking when you're six? You're saying, why would we do that? This is awful. We're leaving everybody we know. We're leaving our school. We're leaving our house. We're leaving everything that's ever been familiar. I don't understand. But as a parent, what are you thinking? You're thinking, well, this is a decision made on a, a bigger view. It's not just what's good for us right now, but what will be good for us in the future? What's our best chance to thrive? Maybe not even just this generation, but the next generation ahead. A child and an adult have very different abilities, capacities to perceive what's happening. Now, if you extract that out and you think about just how much bigger the difference is between a mortal, finite human being and an eternal God, well, doesn't it also make sense then that, that an eternal God could know exactly what he's doing and know exactly why he is doing it? But from our point of view... It just doesn't make much sense. But what God is showing us here is that that he speaks judgment over these nations. That just because in the moment we don't see him at work, it doesn't mean he's silent. It doesn't mean he's ignorant. Just because the wicked flourish today, it doesn't mean they've escaped justice. He is truly sovereign over all the earth. And you know what else? If he's sovereign over all the earth, that means he's sovereign over your life too. And he sees your life too. And so that brings us to the second truth in this passage. That God relates intimately to his people. In this prophecy, the nations are judged. But they're judged, if you listened, in proportion to what they know about God. God judges them for horrible, terrible atrocities. But as he starts to move in closer, when he gets to the seventh nation, when he starts to talk about Judah, the other half of the covenant people, well, the focus of his judgment shifts. It gets, very, it gets far more specific. He says, for three sins of Judah... Even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. They have been led astray by false gods that their ancestors followed. And so I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortress of Jerusalem. Now again, 
He's not preaching to Judah. He's preaching to Israel. So if you're in Israel and you hear this prophecy, this is an ominous moment. Because you know that Amos, a Judean, didn't come all the way up to Israel to preach about Judah. Right? Judah was the other half of the nation. And to be honest, if one half had a better claim, who really was God's most beloved people? It was probably Judah. Because Judah still had the sons of David on the throne. This is that moment, you know, when you're on the roller coaster and it's click, 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 click. You know, you're right, right about to take the plunge. If Judah isn't safe, it's not looking good for us. Judah and Israel, these two nations together, are more blessed than any other nation in the history of the earth. Even today, God spoke directly to them. He set them apart. He made a covenant with them. He showed them the way to live a full, abundant life. And so their sin is far more offensive. God has shown them himself. The great I am. And they rejected him. And so here we come to the main point. This is the, the moment the whole thing has led up to. It's Isaiah, uh, it's Amos chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver. And the needy for a pair of sandals, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. They lie down besides every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. This is the first accusation, and there's a lot more to come. <laughs> Robert's going to be up here next week. We're going to hear a lot more about this. But the first accusation... Pretty specific. He says, these people, they're selling the poor into slavery over tiny debts. Things as small as a pair of sandals. They're treating the poor with contempt. They're denying them justice. They're even taking the coats, the, the, the things they need to survive. They're taking them to, as pledges for their debts when they couldn't pay them. And, and they're doing crazy stuff. They're creating these fines so they can buy wine and get drunk off of their money, what little money they have. And then there's this line here that, that you heard, that, that father and son use the same girl. And if you're like me, as you read that in our current worldview, I was, you know, you're thinking about sexual promiscuity or, or maybe prostitution, but this is not a, a world of sexual promiscuity, Right? This is a, a pre-birth control world. This is a world where betrothals happen. This is actually a very specific word for girl. It doesn't refer to a prostitute. It refers to a young married woman. And, and scholars say that behind this is the idea that the patriarchs of the families were asserting their right to sleep with their daughters-in-law after they were married. And that the sons were okay with it. I mean, first of all, it's gross, right? That's, but it's also it just it's horrific abuse of power is what's being communicated there. 
right? These young women who have hardly any power in this society to begin with, no ability to speak up for themselves, they were being used as objects for the pleasure of powerful men. And so there's this common thread running through each of these first four accusations that God has a heart for the poor and the oppressed. And scripture is abundantly clear on that, is it not? This morning, our call to worship, we all read very loudly, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Proverbs says that he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. But if I had to pick the most terrifying passage about God's heart for the poor, I think we need to look at Matthew chapter 25. Very familiar passage, but it, it, here's how it reads. It's Jesus himself talking, and he says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's a word we need to hear today. A Presbyterian pastor who I really admire, he likes to say, we have not reached the poor, we have not loved the poor until they are the elders in our churches. Do you understand what that's all about? Until they have not, not just become people we minister to, but they have become a part of who we are. Just like Israel, we are a people who know God's heart for the poor. But where are they? Our church doesn't have many young families. And so, we hired a pastor to reach young families, which I'm very happy about. Thank you. <laughs> but we did that because we knew our future depended on it. I would say our church doesn't reach the poor. So what do we do about it? If we took this seriously, if we took God's heart seriously, what would change about our church? If we believed the gospel, we know the gospel, right? That he who was rich, Jesus, became poor so that we who were spiritually destitute could inherit the kingdom of God. 
If we believed that message, who would we prioritize in our outreach? Where would our money go? How would we pray? How would we spend our time and energy? Have we forgotten what God has done for us? And that's what makes this passage really hit home. This next little segment here. Because that's the exact question that God asks the people of Israel. There's this segment from verses 9 to 11 that is different from all the other prophecies, right? There are eight total nations, and none of them have this section except for Israel. It is this point where all the rest of them, God lays out the judgment coming. But here, instead, God says this. I destroyed the Ammonites before them, meaning I wiped out Canaan. I gave you this land to live in. I brought you up out of Egypt. You were in the wilderness for 40 years, and I gave you a land, and I gave you prophets, and I gave you holy people to lead you. And he says, have you forgotten my special care? That's the horror of the sin of Israel. That's what this is all about, and and it is the horror of the sin each of us is capable of today as God's people. See, the, the point here is that the sin of the church is in a different category than the sin of the rest of the world because God, this powerful, almighty, sovereign king, has shown us kindness and mercy Things we didn't deserve. Just like Israel was, we were strangers and we were exiles. We were aliens and illegal immigrants. We were oppressed by Satan, sin, and death. And God showed us mercy. God made us his own. He took us out of this abject spiritual poverty and he put us in the heavenly throne room so our sin and and our rejection of his call to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God is a heinous offense Because God has pursued us in love the whole time. That's another thing we need to know here. We're reading these passages and they sound so horrible, but but he is not an angry God. You know, God is not Thanos from the Marvel movies, right? He's, He's not this guy coming down out of outer space trying to wipe everybody out. No, he is a God who has related intimately to us. Who has made a covenant with his people, who has promised to redeem us. He truly loves us so much that he would deliver his people up out of slavery and give them a nation to live in, so much that he would give his only son to die so that we could be freed from our slavery to sin. And so that brings us to the third truth of this text. And that is simply this, that God always accomplishes his purposes. 
the force of these words is terrifying, right? It's kind of off-putting. You know, if you're a visitor here this morning, I'm sorry. These are, this is tough. This is tough stuff. But you have to remember that God has been incredibly patient with Israel. He has endured their sin for generations. And they turned away from him. They have chosen a life apart from him and apart from his law. And so in these final verses of our passage, God says, You want life apart from me? Well, I'll give you what you want. He says, Now I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. And the swift will not escape. And the strong will not muster their strength. And the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warrior will flee naked on that day. The last lines of our prophecy are a declaration of judgment. It's a picture of destruction. It's a picture of chaos. It's a picture of 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 horror, of terror. He says, Israel, you think that all those pagan nations around you deserve judgment? Well, you're right. They do. You think that your sister nation, Judah, those people that you split away from, you think that they have abandoned God? Well, you're right. They have. But you have been so busy pointing your fingers at the world around you. Now, church, I want to ask, are you listening? You who have been so keen to notice all the failings of everybody else in the culture, you need to realize that at this moment, Israel, you are the chief object of my wrath. There's no way around it. This is bleak. This message is judgment is coming. Period. It's too late for repentance. Israel will suffer God's wrath and be destroyed. But what about us? What do we do with this now? A few thousand years removed. What are we supposed to take away from these chapters as we head out into Mooresville? Well, I think there's two things we need to see. One is that God cares. This passage reminds us that God is engaged. He's not the watchmaker God of deism that just created everything and wound it up and then walked away. God cares about evil. He cares about injustice. He cares about the weak. He cares about suffering. He cares about pain. He cares so much, in fact, that he entered into it. The whole gospel story is that that he became one of the poor and the oppressed. That he suffered. God himself suffered. Get your mind around that. God himself suffered under the injustice of men to deliver us from it. And so when we get overwhelmed by the weight of the world, by this constant flow of of evil that we hear in the news of the day, 
by the pressures that we feel every moment of our lives and our, our own relationships. This passage tells us that our God is neither ignorant, absent, nor tolerant of that evil. He cares. The second thing we need to see here is that God's judgment is serious. You know, as, as terrifying as that little, those last few verses were that I read, being crushed and conquered and, and destroyed, the truth is, even that judgment was God's mercy. Even that judgment meant that Israel still had another chance to see that their sin was an offense to God. Those punishments, those things, they were all temporary. They were all temporal. They were rooted in this, this world. God destroyed their nation, but his love for them did not end in that moment. But there is a true judgment that's coming. There is a final day coming when God will one day, once and for all, finally bring every single one of us to account. There's a day coming where after God's judgment, only the righteous will remain. Maybe it's today. This passage, it's all about destruction, but I don't want you to get confused. Because that's not what this book is about. The whole story of this book, the story contained in the Bible, is not a story of destruction. It is actually the story of God's magnificent plan to redeem his people and all of his creation. It's, this is his plan to eradicate evil from the world. And to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But the only way we get to be a part of that story is if we are standing with Jesus. The only way we get to be a part of that story is if we lay down our self-righteousness. If we stop pointing our fingers at all the bad people out there who we see around us and instead we surrender. We confess that, yeah, I'm guilty too. I'm just as bad and just as far from God and his will for me. The only way we're going to live up to God's standard of goodness on that day of judgment is if we give up our claims to our own rightness and our own righteousness and instead we cling to the righteousness of Christ given freely by faith. See, this story, it doesn't end in destruction. It doesn't end with the annihilation of Israel, but it ends with a loving redemption. It ends not with the end of God's covenant people, but it ends with the picture of a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Probably the last pages of your Bible, it says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying. the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne, he says, I am making everything new. God sends us this message because he loves you and he wants you to be with him. And God always accomplishes his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. And I thank you even for the unexpected emotion that I feel as I read those words. Lord, I pray that anyone here who is is moved and desires to know you, I pray you would reveal yourself. I pray for those who might be watching us online or hearing this recorded who knows when. Would you show yourself? And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for our judgmentalness. And Lord, I pray that we would look to you in hope as judge, that we would live lives that glorify and honor you. And I pray, Lord, that as you look at this church, you would delight. Father, we pray this in Christ's name.